Hi, this is Ryan, Noah, Hi, y'all. and Lou. Hey, guys. From Punching Out. We've been airing on Wayo for four years now and want you to know that everything the station does is only possible through a lot of volunteer labor and the support of listeners like you. So from now until November 12th, you can go to donate.wayofm, that's W-A-Y-O-F-M.org, and help keep us and the 80 other shows that air on Wayo each week going for years to come. Donors and Wayo members get cool perks like t-shirts, discounts at local businesses, and more. So go to donate.wayofm.org to support your favorite community radio station. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On our show last week, we talked about various strikes that have been going on in the month of October. And one that, unfortunately, we weren't able to get to is one that's happening fairly close to home here in western New York. Um, Maybe you've heard about this by now because it's been going on for, uh, I think, a month this week. The um, Catholic Mercy Hospital in Buffalo is um, seeing a strike of its nurses there. Some 2,000 nurses are on strike at the hospital protesting the fact that they've been dealt with understaffing for months in the middle of this pandemic, uh, which, you know, obviously has had a great toll on workers in every sector, but no more so than in healthcare. Um, you know, and sort of the theme of today's episode is how organized labor has responded to the unique challenges and, you know, everything else that has come with COVID-19 over the last year and a half plus now. Yeah, it's fun to always think about you know, we're a year and a half into this and some things haven't really changed. Part of the, the things that the nurses are striking against is access and, and other healthcare workers around the country are, are striking against is, is continued lack of access to uh, PPE and um, other safety measure, measures that would help keep them safe. It, it, it seems like what you've got in, in that sort of other things that came along with the pandemic, we've seen a wave of unprecedented uh, opportunism from employers to either take away things that benefits and whatnot that employees had or add to their workload while giving them nothing in exchange. And healthcare has certainly not been immune because our healthcare system in this country is a colossal nightmare where, you know, for-profit hospital groups get to cartelize entire regions and uh, deny people life-saving care by understaffing, by purposefully lining the pockets of like four CEOs and uh, putting everybody's lives at stake because for some reason, this is the one country that it has the wealth that it does that refuses to consider healthcare a public utility. So, 
you know, we were, it, it really is striking how you, no pun intended, how uniquely unprepared we were for a pandemic as a particular problem. Right. Um, w- one thing we learned over the course of the pandemic, which, uh, you know, was sort of tangential to the issues at hand in this labor battle, we've had, you know, something where these hospitals have all been built around the idea of efficiency and of not having too many excess beds because, you know, that's space that, you know, you have to pay for that you can't fill, that you can't make money off of at the end of the day with, you know, patients filling beds. And, you know, what we've seen is, you know, there are reasons to have excess beds lying around in a hospital. There are reasons to be prepared for, you know, worst case scenarios, even if that isn't making you money every quarter after quarter. In my industry, there's a, a kind of a maxim that you don't plan or build for your busiest days. Like you don't build your church so that it could have Easter Sunday attendance every single day. You build it so you have your average. And that's true if you're, you know, an entertainment thing, if you're not something you have to do. But we have absolutely seen how people have lost their lives because we didn't have and because we were, we planned our healthcare around that same maxim. And it's very strange that it seems even on the other side of it, there's no indication whatsoever from hospitals. And uh, most importantly, the people who own hospitals, that they'll be doing anything different. Well, because nobody's going to force them. I mean, that that's ultimately the problem. This is you know, we learned over the last year and a half that sometimes you just kind of have to tell people to do things. You can't wait until they are convinced on their own and you can't persuade them gently and politely. Sometimes you have to tell them that they have to do things. And nobody in this country has to be told more to do things than the kind of people who made money off of this pandemic, which is every company that owns hospital groups, they walked off with tons more money than they already had while claiming, like every other company, that that they were losing out, which is impossible because they were a healthcare facility during a pandemic. That is the opposite of reality. But in this country, we believe it when CEOs say things like that. I don't know why, but we do. Yeah, we've um, obviously have given CEOs very many avenues through which to broadcast their many messages and when you give people that many ways to be heard, people start listening. You you know, you get, it filters down through all of society and not just people with CEO mindset, if you will. Um, CEO mindset. That's good. Genius award mindset. (laughs) I want to quote a bit from this article in the Buffalo news published October 31st, you know, this past Sunday, um, which talks about some of the, issues of the strike now at the one month mark despite progress at the table much of the language used by the two sides publicly remained bitter sunday for instance catholic health just after 3 p.m announced it had started sending notices to striking workers that the health system would stop paying and administering their health benefit coverage following up on a warning announced several days earlier how do you even respond to a hospital denying its workers its nurses health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. Like the incentives are all perverse. It's very normal. Well done. 
I, I can think of a few ways to remedy this problem, but they will all get us fined by the FCC. Shout out to our FCC friends. Yes. It, the who it was uh, the John Deere tried to call healthcare strikes the for the UAW. Uh, Kellogg, I think, did cut end up cutting the the healthcare for it. So it's a strike tacket tactic. Which side note is exactly why we need to separate employment from health coverage. Just as a side note uh, and perennial reminder for everyone out there, but it's very goofy that this is something that they would do. Um, I don't know if goofy is the right word. I don't think goofy's exactly the right word, but it's cynical is maybe a better adjective for it. It's, you know, it's bleak, you know, but it is given the uh, incentives they have to end this strike as quickly as possible because it is, you know, causing real uh, damage to the thing they care about, the bottom line. This is one weapon of many in their arsenal. Um, to the point about you know it causing damage to their bottom line, I'm just going to continue from this Buffalo News article. Catholic Health is paying millions each week for replacement workers and has been forced to pass patients off to other local hospitals for treatment and procedures, costing it revenue and squeezing capacity at other hospitals with burned out staff of their own. You're seeing like a reduction in this hospital's ability to take in new patients and, you know, bill those new patients. And, you know, that's what a strike does. It reduces the ability of an employer to do what it normally does to make money. And because these healthcare groups and hospital groups and so on tend to have multiple revenue streams, they, they tend to be somewhat resilient to things like this because, Ultimately, the CEO, uh, which I think is Joey McDonald, it, they're going to be fine no matter what happens, whether the strike is broken tomorrow or in 10 months or an agreement is reached or whatever. He's going to keep laughing all the way to the bank and he will have done so. And, and this is a very minor tangent, but I mean, it's a Catholic hospital. Part of Catholic social teaching, part of the stuff that everybody from Joe Biden on down talks about believing in is the dignity of the worker, the belief that workers have the right to have a labor union, have the right to fair wages, have the right to be taken care of by their employees. And for some reason, Catholic institutions in this country have a real problem believing in that when it comes to their own employees, which is very strange because I would think that a religious conviction would be strong enough to be maintained even when it hurts the bottom line. But I guess that doesn't really apply here. How odd. Later in the show, we'll come across some people who are inventing religious convictions uh, to benefit themselves. Um, Yeah, you're right. You know, this is uh, not the sort of thing that I think Pope Francis would uh, be uh, proud of, I guess, to see. And hasn't he like expressly said this that that striking labor? Yeah, and recently, Noah's exactly right. Like this is this is bizarre. Even that it's uh, it's not strange that it's a hospital that's being this mean about striking workers and and it's paying its staff and making sure that there's not enough coverage because most of these strikes aren't for healthcare workers aren't even about pay necessarily. They're about coverage. They're about making sure that there's enough staff available so that you don't have to choose between, in one example that 
that was in an article, somebody falling out of a bed and somebody experiencing chest pains in another. Like this is, that's what it's about. And a lot of institutions teaching for one, healthcare for another, want to miss, want to abuse its workers by telling everybody else that it's a calling, that people aren't doing this labor for monetary reasons. There's no selfishness involved. But in the end, that ends up being inherently exploitative, that they're going to abuse your passion for what you're doing in order to mistreat you. And this hospital is the most recent person to do that. But we can name tons of other industries. Noah might know one, for example, and other lines of work that do the same thing. And it's basically anything that doesn't pay, you're expected to do because you have a passion and a calling for it. I think by 2021, when we've all been ground down into dust and worked to the bone continuously, uh, despite our a labor shortage, which is just a capital strike, in in reality, like this is ridiculous, and I don't I don't know anybody who's actually buying that anymore. That your passion should equate to misery. And and the thing about it too is that without getting into what I do for a living, the thing about it too is that once you do burn out, they use that against you. Because it's proof that you were never one, you were never really called to do the work. You never really felt it. You were only doing it for the money or the benefits. What money? What benefits? But that's the insistence. If you try to defend your rights as a worker, then you have abdicated the vocation, which obviously is horse manure, but it's particularly magnified in the case of healthcare workers because they are one of the few sectors. Number one, that we're all eventually going to need. And number two, that we all like demand deal with us at our worst. The the reason nurses are striking for coverage is because they cannot do effective patient care at this point. They can't make sure that patients aren't getting bed sores. They can't make sure that patients aren't suffering from the effects of not having enough nurses around. And when after the pandemic, these hospital groups push out bonuses and benefits for making it through, they give them to doctors, but not to nurses. Who, and I hope this is not a controversial statement on punching out, are doing a lot more of the work and are certainly getting paid a lot less for doing it. Lou, to the point you made that a lot of the arguments aren't necessarily over pay exactly, but rather over like staffing and, you know, staffing ratios. Um, the article notes that like negotiations about pay raises have like they're between like three and two percent, which, you know, make big differences when we're talking about how much money you take home at the end of the day. But what's really been a sticking point in negotiations, at least according to this article, is these staffing ratios and the penalties the hospital would have to face for not meeting those staffing ratios, because being when they're understaffed like that, it's it puts stress on the workers who are there as you know, we've seen throughout the healthcare system and so many other industries this past year. Yeah. Like all of them. Uh, And what's interesting about, I'm pretty sure it's that article, that same article is the hospital says, but we didn't do anything that was illegal. 
so they know very well that they have understaffed. They just haven't done it to the point where the state is actually going to yell at them. And that's not right. That's not fair. If you're not listening to your staff on this issue and what they can actually do, then you're going to have a strike, fellas. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, this hospital in Buffalo is not just some unique outlier. These are stresses and pressures that have been felt by uh, basically every healthcare system in the United States the last year and a half. Uh, that's a point we keep repeating, but really, it's true. But um, in particular, there is a hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, that has seen a strike now go on, I think it's eight months now. Which is the um, longest, I think it's the longest hospital strike in Massachusetts history. Yeah. The headline in NBC News from um, October 10th is Massachusetts nurses strike hits seven month mark. This is St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, which um, I don't know if it's also sort of with that name, uh, another one of these Catholic hospitals, but. It is, but it's owned by, I believe, a Dallas-based company that does not appear to be religious in nature. So, you know, they kept the St. Vincent for the the giggles. (laughs) People associate saints with hospital names, I feel. It's a common hospital thing. We also keep coming up with the fact that that a lot of these strikes are, or a lot of these hospitals are owned by somebody else. Your hospital is going to be owned by a hospital group that's trying to do economies of scale and get as many things going so that it can improve its its return on investment. And uh, once again, we must note that running things that are necessary to live as for-profit ventures is inherently immoral and uh, downright evil, frankly. There's a quote from this NBC article that is sort of, um, I feel like it's giving the game away. Um, it's one of the hospital administrators talking about uh, staffing ratio that uh, the union has demanded. Um, Quote, if every hospital across the state went to a four to one ratio, you wouldn't have enough nurses, she said. It would exacerbate an already challenging staffing crisis. Whose fault is it that there aren't enough nurses? And number two, isn't that hospital using replacement workers right now? Yeah. So the staffing crisis is not bad enough to keep you from being able to hire people to replace the people who are striking, which implies that there are people whose nursing labor is available. So yet again, as Lou said, this is crap. I mean, this is something and and Ryan, I know you told a couple stories about this on a recent episode, but increasingly Every time somebody argues with me and says, well, I have a friend who owns a restaurant and he can't find anybody or blah, blah, blah. Like increasingly, we know this to not be true. We know that whenever somebody says, I can't find anyone to work for me, what they mean is I can't find anyone to work for me for what I want to pay them, which is nothing. And the fact that not, not that anybody should get away with that, but the fact that again, I keep coming back to this because this is the unbelievable part to me. The fact that hospitals are getting away with trying to do this during a pandemic should be proof that the social fabric is kaput. It is gone because these shouldn't be just nurses outside these hospitals. These should be people who are going to need that hospital at some point in their lives showing up to support them. 
like how do you eventually you are going to end up there one way or the other you would presumably prefer not to die of easily preventable infections because nobody could attend to you yeah i mean as a society we have built a healthcare system that costs more than anywhere else in the world and nevertheless doesn't want to pay the people doing the labor enough to actually do that labor it's um you know there's some real contradictions in that seeming paradox that you know if you take a moment to think about why that is i i think it starts to make a bit more sense even if you know the answer isn't pleasant the answer is that the executives are you know taking all the money for themselves and not giving enough to the people doing the work speaking Spoilers. of yeah the the executive so uh joey mcdonald that uh, Noah said was running this Catholic hospital. Um, this is an old article, but apparently his salary in 2014, which granted was m- several years ago, was $1.4 million. Well, I'm sure it's gone down since, probably. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, that's a thing that happens to executive pay. That we've you're, you're the head of a, a system called Catholic Health System. I mean, one would think you would take a vow of poverty at some point. Hmm. Right. Weird how that doesn't seem to happen. Hmm. How many? How much money has have the billionaires uh, raked up in the past eighteen months? Is it like what trillions at this point? It it's something like I think of the total wealth, quote unquote, generated in the past year and a half. I think fully half of it went to people who, in no dimension, like there are no laws of physics you could apply. There is no universe where those people need it at all. So we live in a world where. The people who absolutely not only don't need but will never spend that money have hoovered up so much of it and directly immiserated the rest of us. That's and, why people are striking. And you know, and they've asked us to get on it on with it with a smile on our faces and just and and they know is the thing what bothers me. They know that nobody is buying this. They know that. They just don't care. They want you to say yes anyway. That That's the attitude that you're seeing all over the place, that people know that you know they're lying, but they don't care because they can still make you say yes. Every job you apply to knows that you have to write a cover letter and a resume that is as passionate and customized as possible so that they'll even take a look at you. But they And they know that you don't feel that way, but they can make you do it. Right now, all this is, is the entire American labor landscape right now is about satisfying the sadism of every terrible person in the country. That's all it is. It's just organized. Well, yeah, I wish I could come up with a better word, but it is just organized sadism. That's all it is at this point. The good news is if Mark Zuckerberg has his way, um, we'll be able to do all that stuff you just talked about in VR, and that'll be good. Ha <laughs> ha. Can't wait if for you could future. only go in there permanently, that'd be great, along with all of his friends and his cold goat meat. I'm not going to ask about that. We should probably take a break. After this break, we'll talk about you know some of the other sectors of um, labor organizing and you know how unions in general, outside of the healthcare sector, have responded to you know the unique challenges of the pandemic. You know this unprecedented year and whatnot. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. 
If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Before we get into our second segment, I do want to take a moment to remind everybody that Wayo's annual fundraiser is happening right now. Uh, the station makes everything we do on this show possible. We really wouldn't have an audience or uh, anything without them. We'd just be yelling at each other for no reason. Um, Instead, they gave us a reason. So um, you should go to donate.wayofm.org and, you know, help keep the station going, help keep the show going, and in general, be, you know, a nice member of your community by contributing to community radio, which is really cool when you think about it. I wanted to say this is a labor show, right? And the amount of work, and, and we've witnessed a lot of it firsthand, the amount of work that goes into making these shows possible is, uh, quite frankly, more than I would ever care to take on. And I am so grateful, and I think we all are, right, to the, I think it's more than 100 volunteers that get all the work done for Wayo. And they've always been there for us when we've needed them. They've come up with ways to solve the weirdest requests that we've had and troubleshoot on Sunday mornings and whatnot. They've been wonderful. Mm -hmm. So please do donate. Yes. And to donate, you would go to donate.wayofm.org. Um, membership perks are a thing. You can become a Wayo member. Um, it's $5 a month or $100 single donation. Um, any amount will help them. They're trying to raise $15,000 in new donations for the year. Um, to help buy us new things and keep us running. Um, and all of these things are, are really great and support the station and support us by proxy. So please donate. It would be great. Thanks, guys. To the topic at hand, we spent the first segment of the show talking about um, a couple of hospital strikes that have been going on for you know varying lengths at this point, one month, seven months. And I wanted to move on in the second segment to talk about how the rest of organized labor has responded to the pandemic and specifically over this sort of second phase of the pandemic where the vaccine is now available and it's now in varying states of being required in many workplaces, in many cities, in many locations. A sort of narrative that has popped up over the last few months that was never really true, but people wanted it to be true, was that all of these mandates would be deeply unpopular with the working class who obviously don't know enough to know what's good for them. And in fact, actually, every poll suggests actually, yeah, mandates pretty well received. Um, workers unions themselves have largely been you know, okay to onboard with mandates it, if they haven't always, you know, 100% agreed with how they've been implemented. But, um, you know, that sort of narrative has sort of crashed against the rocks of, you know, actual reality the last few months. Well, one would hope that it would, right? But it mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't actually seem to ever finish crashing. 
It just slides along the rocks of actual reality, somehow managing to pick up speed as it does so. Because this, we saw this happen during the early pandemic, where everyone insisted, and you know the term learning loss got thrown around so much, and you had all these people insisting that, no, everyone wants kids back to school without masks, without vaccines yet. Uh, everyone wants kids back in school. And then they took a poll. And I, I remember distinctly one from Arizona where the only sector, the only sector where the majority supported putting kids back in school, regardless of whether masks, social distancing, vaccine, mitigation, PPE, all of those things were followed, were school administrators, principals, deans, superintendents, those people wanted that. But not parents, not students, certainly not teachers who knew full well that schools were not going to abide by the rules. That happened here in Rochester. You had almost astroturf parent groups pushing, and I think this happened in Milwaukee and in a couple other cities, where you had mysteriously a majority white group of parents claiming to speak for black and brown parents, saying that, you know, people of color, parents of color, students of color, they want to be back in the classroom. And then you would pull the actual parents and students of color, and they would say, no, we have every good reason to believe that schools are not going to be safe for us right now. And they were right, by the way, and it didn't matter. Because in this country, we don't take education seriously. We certainly don't take teachers' lives seriously. That was plainly clear over the last year and a half. And that narrative was allowed to continue, and it became the thin end of the wedge. Because now, with every other kind of worker, they've just copied that talking point and used it for all of them. I guess because like it fits the stereotype of like a guy wearing a hard hat with like a don't tread on me flag on his truck. I don't understand why everybody believes it, but more people do than should. I no, I, we do know why. And it's because the only only unions that seem to make any kind of newsworthy anything that'll make the sound clip at the, the 10 o'clock news or whatever. Sorry, it's 11 o'clock around here. Uh, my my central time zone <laughs> roots are showing. Uh, the 11 o'clock news is cop unions. Those are what people think of when they think of working class. And that's the problem is that they're the only version of working class that we seem to have is the the thugs and the police uniforms. Well, I, I think uh, hard hats also qualify one as a member of the working class is the sort of popular image. Um, Noah, when you said we saw this earlier in the pandemic, what I thought you were going to go into was like very early stages of the pandemic, like April of last year, when we had those anti-shutdown rallies and that were much like the, uh, you know, pro-opening school, you know, protest, very much AstroTurf, very much brought in by like the Small Business Alliance in, you know, XYZ City. Even at that time, there was this narrative that these lockdowns were just onerous upon the working class who just wanted to go back to their jobs. But when you actually interviewed the people at those rallies, they'd be, you know, restaurant owners who wanted to be able to, you know, pay their workers a minimum wage again. And what's wild to me is that, well, actually, I guess it's not wild. I guess what I'm really saying is, I guess the nice thing about it is that a lot of us finally 
stop believing anything that the media does because clearly they're not interested in getting the actual story here. They were asked to do a story that's clearly meant to create a certain feeling. So we were talking about healthcare strikes in the last segment. And one of the articles that we read about these, I realized way too late. I just saw the acronym and it didn't occur to me, but it's by Kaiser Health News, which takes pains to point out that it is not at all related to Kaiser Permanente, where there are healthcare workers on strike. Mysterious that the Kaiser family has a foundation that supports a site that does healthcare news and that they're reporting on healthcare strikes elsewhere while Kaiser Permanente workers are trying to do a labor action. Weird. I almost begin to think my unaffiliated with Kaiser Permanente disclaimer is raising a lot of questions. Unfortunately, basically every news outlet still in existence now has to have one of those disclaimers. You know, Washington Post famously run by Jeff Bezos, who has no shortage of angry workers on his hands. You know, listen, democracy dies in darkness and also possibly in space. Yeah. This episode Space is turning is very into. Dark. It's true. It's turning into our greatest hits of uh, the past year. It we're news really... sucks. Cops suck. Healthcare workers are are getting uh, destroyed because of capitalism. Like this is great. We're we're really lining up the rogues gallery on this one. It's just, but it makes sense because all of the worst people in America are all combining here. You've got bosses, terrible people. We've already established that. They're all involved in making sure that their workers don't get ad- adequate equipment and whatnot. You've got, like, frankly, entitled parents who just want their kids out of the way and back in schools, unsafe schools where their teachers and they might get sick and die. You've got uh, cops, enough said. And you've got, like, they're all combining to make this so much worse than it needs to be. Oh, and then you've got bought and paid for, you know media sites who like even if individual people want to do good things they are necessarily corralled into addressing very narrow aspects of these stories because nothing is scarier to power than you know a people that like understands what's actually going on and what's actually going on right now is that there's a concerted effort to make every single person in this country just feel grateful to have any job anything to be paid a cent an hour, as long as somebody else has paid nothing. Um, one other front of this little mini culture war that I've think is worth noting here is that bit of controversy over when Southwest Airlines had to delay some flights out of Jacksonville, and you know this was all because of inclement weather and the normal sorts of reasons that flights get delayed, but. Some sectors of the right convinced themselves that um, this was because they had implemented a vaccine mandate for their workers and suddenly they didn't have enough staff to, you know, get the planes up and running. And, you know, this is the sort of future we all had to face if, you know, these vaccine mandates took hold. And obviously that hasn't been true. People have been flying across the country as normal in the two months or so since this happened. It may have happened two weeks ago time dilation is happening well i mean the the southwest thing i mean a lot of airlines have been suffering the same problem and it is my understanding of is it is 
a little bit of a staff shortage thing, but it's not because of vaccine mandates. It's because like everybody else, they laid off a bunch of people and didn't hire them back when demand increased. And so like the labor unions have not been against vaccine mandates and they've been for uh, vaccine mandates and, and increased protections and air filtrations and everything. Um, but that's not what the media has said. Well, and to be fair, because when the media does report it, it's treated as it's always sold to us as it's repackaged as unions don't want to go along with vaccine mandates. I don't know of a single union that actually has just rejected that out of hand. What they have rejected is the framing that as long as your workers are vaccinated, you can expose them to COVID all you want. And you can do it unilaterally too. That's the thing. The vaccine mandate, the the reason that people, that unions specifically might oppose a particular one is because it is going to be imposed by management, number one, already a problem because you do not want to give management that kind of power. You don't want to give them anything without a fight. Nothing. I don't care if it's a good thing. You don't want to let them impose it on you. Number two, more importantly, the vaccine mandate is the one that's your fault. The vaccine mandate is the one that you as a worker actually have to go someplace else and get somebody to put that needle in your arm. The masks, the PPE, the air filtration, everything else, that's on your boss. That's on your employer. And even though they are completely immune from liability, if you get sick and die because they didn't do their jobs, because they are, we have immunized them from prosecution for this sort of thing. They will nonetheless, they are nonetheless so scared that one day they might be held responsible for being the conscienceless wastes of creation that they are. That is what they cannot deal with because they know deep in their hearts, I am convinced of how useless they are to the rest of the world at large. And so they have to impose the part that requires you to go do something so that they can forget about all of their responsibility into the bargain. And that's what unions are reacting to. The fact that bosses are saying, you get the needle and I'll be here doing nothing. You buy your own PPE, you buy your own masks, you get, if, if you need air filtration in your office or whatever, or a glass barrier or whatever the heck, you go buy that. I'm not going to do it for you unless you make me. And that's what a union can do. It can make a boss do that. And that's what they're afraid of. You know, despite these sorts of... Um scaremongering about, you know, how many people would not abide by this mandate, you know, Delta, the airlines, not the variant of coronavirus, um, ended up with like a 90% plus uh, employee vaccination rate. Like it's much higher than the general population. Like in general, uh, workers are going along with this. And um, one small segment of the workforce that, um, has put up maybe the biggest fight over these mandates because uh, in part because they are often uh, they are always public employees and it's been cities that have imposed these mandates upon their employees uh, more than anyone else are um, police unions and police unions have raised a really big stink about this they've uh, in Chicago they've threatened to sue the city I believe in other cities as well. Um, everywhere vaccine mandates for city workers get proposed, police unions have sought to seek out a special carve out just for them. And in some cases, they've won that special car- carve out. I believe that 
is what happened in Portland, Oregon. In New York City, where I'm living now, cops and some other city workers, but mainly cops, like shut down the Brooklyn Bridge last week because, you know, they were showing just how opposed to this mandate they were. And this mandate officially went into effect uh, today, actually, this Monday. Um, And what's happened is that despite all their blustering, despite all of their, um, you know, bravado about standing up to this vaccine, uh, something like half of the unvaxxed cops in NYPD got vaccinated within the last week. And the the chief of whatever the heck the... I, I really don't want to call it a union. The gang. Well, they don't call it a union. Yeah. They call it the, you know, fraternal benevolent it's, Benevolent association. I think it's, I think it's... Sergeant's benevolent association. Sure. Listen, who it's cares? Dumb, it's a gang. It is what it is. It's a racket. And they had threatened that 10,000 officers might quit today over that uh, vaccine mandate. Do you want to know how many people went on unpaid leave? How many NYPD officers? 34. That's a lot less. Turns out, turns out, cops are cowards. Who knew? <laughs> they are only ever capable of facing a threat when they have a bunch of riot shields and guns. And also horses and dogs and armored equipment from the military. But when it comes to, like, I see this is the thing, right? We have talked on this show about how we have given way too much power societally, culturally, militarily, to the police in this country. If I'm the kind of person that needs that, that is so insecure as to need all of those accoutrements to feel like a real person, I would think that refusing to get a needle in my arm would make me look like a baby, which it objectively does. And that's the thing that I cannot fathom. The fact that we let people like this continue to get away with this with this level of just absolute cravenness. If any of us right now talking to each other, we're like, "Mm, I don't know, I don't want to get, I'm scared of the needle, blah, blah. We would make fun of you. But if you're some roid freak with a badge, apparently we, for some reason, we're supposed to take that as the holy writ that you don't want to get that. That is crazy. There are, a few things I, I want to get into. Um, one is, according to this uh, New York Post article, the the NYPD's current vaccination rate is 85% as of this morning, which is up 15% from a week ago, which is, you know, um, you know, it suggests that a lot of the um, sort of hesitance around the vaccine is not actually a matter of strong willed principle, but just something out of convenience cops don't have principles yeah we knew that that's this is not new teachers have principles yeah because uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. they're the bosses Get one it? would hope yeah. anyway yeah. teachers don't so much have <laughs> principles as principles are thrust upon teachers <laughs> okay that's very silly but that is that is kind of the anti-cop thing because at the same well we're supposed to be taking police union seriously for again refusing to get a shot like i cannot get over the fact that we are having massive media coverage of grown men and women acting like six-year-olds and meanwhile 
when teachers unions, and I will finally come on and say it, I'm a non-union teacher, so I'm not even involved in this discussion. When teachers unions say, maybe we want to have a seat at the table. Maybe we want to be involved in, in how we make this decision. Maybe we want to talk about what else, what other mitigation measures we should have on top of vaccination. They get, number one, treated as though they, they get lumped in with the cops, number one, which, dear God, is that offensive? Because uh, those are two completely different ways of solving problems. And number two, they get treated as though they're not allowed to do that. Presumably because they don't have guns. Like, I think if we if we had gone properly crazy as a country after Sandy Hook and given an armed teachers, I think you would have seen a very different response to teachers unions doing this now. But obviously we didn't because we can't because then we'd have to respect that profession and we're not going to do that. That's never going to happen here. Uh, the the other things I wanted to note that make this sort of anti-vax sentiment among police officers particularly galling is one, you know, if we can't trust you to take a vaccine for everybody else's safety, why are we giving you a gun supposedly for everybody else's safety? Like there's real disconnect in, uh, you know, the ostensible purpose of police if they're not willing to do this for public safety. And two, studies have shown that actually the leading killer of police over the last year was COVID-19, you know, something like 300 of them succumbed to COVID-19. Um, and, you know, for all of the efforts they take to make you believe that every traffic stop for them is, you know, a life-threatening situation, actual life-threatening situations, they are far less aggressive about uh, mitigating. To be fair, they never told you whose life is being threatened. We should take a break at this point, I think. And when we come back, we'll try to chart a path forward as best we can. We'll get into the positive segment that Punching Out listeners have come to know and love. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent the first two segments of today's show talking about um, how various segments of the American workforce have uh, responded to the pandemic and vaccine mandates more specifically, and what it is exactly that labor has um, supported and not supported over the last few months, despite what other elements of the media might have led you to believe. Um, I, I guess for this last segment, the usual thing here on punching out is to try and end on a positive note, which on this subject means looking forward. It means, you know, what are we hopefully going to take out of this pandemic for the labor movement that it didn't have before? What is it going to do going forward that um, will be better? This is kind of bleak, but it does get posy. I promise. Okay. I I can't remember. The thing is, I can't remember any of the specifics, but this was an interview with, I think, a striking worker. And they said that, to, 
in in my very hazy memory, admittedly, they said that they hadn't always been in favor of a union or of striking or of any of these things, but that that the pandemic had made them realize that their bosses were willing to kill them. And when you realize that your boss is willing to kill you, when you realize that they literally do not care whether you die or live, it really frees you up to consider options. And I think that's why you're seeing one of the articles that we didn't get to talked about how in North Carolina, there's been union drives. North Carolina is the second least unionized state in the entire union. And that's going some because this is an extremely non-unionized country in the first place. Um, But healthcare unions were seeing uh, drives and organizations because people were beginning to realize that, you know, as we said in the first segment, hospital groups don't care about them. They, They don't care whether they live or die. And I've said on this show before that you cannot fall into the trap of expecting the Democratic Party and the unions that already exist. And dear God, you cannot expect President Joe Biden to do everything. They they are not going to regulate and policy us out of this. This is going to have to come from the bottom up. This is going to have to come from workers demanding better from their bosses, which they are starting to do because they are starting to realize that they're the ones that do all the freaking work. Ergo, they have the power in their workplaces. And I mean, I know that we're suggesting more concrete, and I think we will, more concrete future steps, but that's kind of a necessary prerequisite for all of that. You can't do that if you don't know that you're the one with the power. Yeah. Just for the listener's sake, the article Noah referenced is a headline, Health Workers Union See Surge in Interest Amid COVID-19. It was published by pbs.org this past January. Um, This is the Kaiser Health News article that he mentioned earlier as well. Um, But the healthcare industry is not the only one that has seen sort of an uptick in this sort of um, radical views among workers um, during the pandemic. We've seen across the uh, workforce the last few months that People are reconsidering the relationship they had with their jobs before the pandemic and what that relationship looked like last year. And they're deciding they don't want it to look like that going forward. You know, it has been, you know, at least our theory for the ongoing, quote unquote, labor shortages that are plaguing, you know, fast food restaurants across the country. Um, You know, workers have gotten tired of being made sacrificial lambs for this virus they've decided that for for a lot of workers they had time off for the first time in their adult lives they had like weeks without work you know where they didn't have to worry about work because they had gotten you know stimulus checks or what have you you know insufficient as those ended up being but that really makes you think about things you know that sort of time you start considering you know how your life could be different if you weren't doing this specific job for this specific boss. Yeah. They keep referring to it as the great resignation, which. Okay. Yeah. I I think we finally have hit the point where we're no longer beholden to, to a job and that our livelihood does not have to define us. And that's a good thing. That's good. Because it doesn't. I no longer, uh, a comrade pointed out years ago that uh, it's very strange that the first thing we do when we meet people is we ask, what do you do? Um, and I no longer do that. I don't, that 
you know, what you do as your profession or your job or what puts food on the table has no bearing whatsoever uh, on whether or not I'm going to find you interesting as a person. Um, Unless you're a cop, in which case. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that is important thing to notice, but it is weird to say, it's even weirder to say, Hey, are you a cop? Uh, when you're first meeting somebody, then like, Hey, uh, don't worry. They'll tell you. Yeah. Don't (laughs) worry. They'll tell you. Exactly. It, I think because number one, I, I do think that that is a cultural thing and no surprise there, right? That that's something in the U S I think, especially since the eighties and Reaganomics and whatnot, there has been an attempt to just completely entrench work as the center of life for Americans. We've talked on this show about alienation from the home and the family and how work has slowly become more feudalistic again in nature and and all of these things. But one thing that I think is kind of important and to take away specifically from the specific things that we were talking about in this episode is the importance of redundancy. We have cut too many corners as a society for decades and that is coming home to roost on us. Uh, you know, people talk about how in the uh, how we're always falling behind the math and science and whatever. Apollo 11 happened when the U.S. was rated the same in math and science as it is now. They, it has never been about achievement. It has been about resilience and redundancy and building systems that are capable of taking a shock. The problem is that the only shock this country ever cared about were Soviet nuclear missiles. With when those ceased to become a threat, then suddenly everything was thinned out, minimalized to the least possible, the lowest possible expectations. And it turns out that when you face a pandemic, you can't build for the average. You have to build for emergency. And we were caught with our national pants down because we had spent the last 20 years making sure, like if if you wanted a strategy to make a country not ready for a pandemic, that is what happened. Every step of the way, that is exactly how it went down. Our healthcare system, our economy, our labor laws, everything is set up to make us un- incapable of taking on a threat that you can't shoot with a gun. I think the term that gets thrown around is a just-in-time logistics. It's the idea that you know a package arrives in one place and basically within an hour or so it's you know checked and marked and it's off to its next destination and things don't stick around for very long in stock you know a store gets a shipment and the next day it gets sold and they have another shipment in place and you know what happens when you have a pandemic is none of that is really possible and it's possible that none of it was really possible in the first place without just wide scale exploitation of labor. We've talked in the show about how Amazon makes two day shipping work. You know, it's not a good system for workers. It's just very convenient for consumers. At any rate, this is the end product of a lot of effort to make things more quote unquote efficient at, you know, the expense of a long-term vision of, you know, how the system withstands what Noah called a shock like this. 
you cannot build a system that only works when everything is chugging along well. That was the lesson we were supposed to learn from the dot-com bubble. And then it was the lesson we were supposed to learn from the housing bubble. And now it's the lesson that we have to learn from the pandemic. Because there won't be a next time. Not with everything going on the way that it is. I mean, just today, you've got the president in uh, some climate summit saying that market-based solutions are going to fight climate change. That's what will solve it. So it is very obvious that we are hurtling headlong into a future where we have taken nothing useful from all of these things. Or at least that's what it currently looks like. It could be different. It could change. But that requires a lot of people doing a lot of things and doing them pretty quickly. And my hope is that people realizing how much of all of this that we see around us depends on them is, you know, like the dam breaking, that that will be the step that enables everything else to happen in sequence, because we need that kind of ability to survive things. And we're going to need it sooner than we all think. There's a sort of empowerment that comes when realizing that you have the ability to just make things stop that when things rely on you, you know, it it is, you know, it can feel like pressure. It can feel very stressful at times, but it, you know, it does make you feel like, Oh, wow, I'm capable of doing something that I didn't know I was capable of. And we can hope that the last year and a half or so has lent a bit more of that empowerment to more workers and that going forward, we'll see the fruits of that. We'll see something positive to come from that. Just the knowledge that things actually do require them. Things actually, they aren't just the cog in a machine, you know, replaceable part that the economy would like you to think you are, you know, things you actually do have, power over how things turn out that's my hope anyway um before we sign off for this week i do want to take one more time to acknowledge that whale's annual fundraiser is ongoing please go to donate.wayofm.org you can get some great gifts for donating but you can also get the satisfaction of helping punching out and shows like us continue going for another year it's really appreciated thank you We can't do this without your help. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.